We're nine years in. This is our ninth year doing this, um, and it's become a tradition, an annual tradition at our church. Uh, traditions are really important for faith communities, and I think especially for our church in the city of San Francisco, there are so many shifts and changes we have to make as a church plant uh, in the city, um, and people are all the time coming and going, and so rhythms like this are anchors uh, for our uh, faith and our family together, they sustain us through change. And so even as things change, we have these sort of annual things that we walk through. Um, they're also important for new people to experience who've joined over the last year. It grafts you into a community that has a history. Um, and so when you do it year after year, it helps you um, feel like you belong to something that is uh, goes beyond you. And then also, as you do it year after year, it helps you notice your own history. As you, the story stays the same, but you shift and change. Uh, we change year to year, and you might notice yourself having a different reaction this year than last year. Um, it's always fun to sort of notice those things. What are the things that um, are noteworthy to you? What are the different kinds of emotions that you have around certain stories? So we do the story of God every year for tradition's sake. Um, we also walk through the story of God every year because one of our distinctives as a church is that we are a story-formed people. That's, we have uh, six distinctives, and that's the first one. Uh, that's why we do have a liturgy that we follow every year. That's why we follow the church calendar is because we want to find our individual stories in the greater story of God. Stories shape us. Uh, so if you've ever read, listened to, or watched a brilliant story, then you know that narrative has a unique way of affecting you, um, that just uh, facts and uh, philosophical truths, those sorts of things, principles, instructions, don't affect you. Um, if you think of a good book you've read or a movie you've seen that just changed how you viewed some part of the world. Uh, when we experience a story like this, it also makes us want to share it with others. Uh, we are more likely to talk about um, stories with people. We retell it, and if there's someone else who knows the story, then we want to um, geek out over the details of the story. We want to discuss the deeper meanings in it. Um, stories can influence entire cultures for centuries. Um, a couple years ago, I read A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. I had never read it, um, and then immediately after, we watched the uh, Spirited on Apple TV, which was um, Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds. It's very funny. It's a musical adaptation of it, um, and that's such an impressive legacy for a story, a short story written in the mid-19th century, over 180 years to have influence and be retold in so many different ways and affect you. Um, it says something true. It's a great story. For Christians, the Bible is the greatest story. Uh, but often we fail to read it as a story. We pull out verses and beliefs from scripture, doctrines from the Bible. We systematize it. And that has its place. Uh, that is an important strategy. But we need to remember that the Bible is first and foremost a story, a narrative with a beginning, middle, and end. And that's why we pause every year this month and we re-experience or perhaps experience for the first time the Bible in its entirety. Christians find our identity in this ancient yet ever relevant story uh, with six stages. And so that's the symbols uh, that are on the art. Creation, rebellion, promise, redemption, kingdom, and restoration. Creation, rebellion, promise, redemption, kingdom, and restoration. This story tells us who we are, how to live, where hope is found. Um, like I said, this story comes from the Bible. Uh, some of us in here believe the Bible is completely true, 100%. Others believe it's partly true, um, or it's true as a metaphor, but not really true. Um, for our purpose, though, that's okay. We all come from different places and different perspectives, and it's actually a good thing. It makes the discussion a lot more interesting if we come um, at it from different spaces. Uh, so feel free this morning to challenge the story. So basically, the structure is I'll just... It'll be like story time where I just will like read a story and then we'll talk through it and ask about how you feel about it, what's um, challenging to you, uh, what's frustrating to you. You can say, I don't like that character. You can say, it feels like God overreacted there, all those sorts of things. No emotion, question, or thought is off limits. 
This is a safe place. Um, As you can imagine, I'm a pastor, and so I believe this story is entirely true and entirely good, even the hard parts, Um, but you're not going to hurt my feelings if you think it's untrue, Um, even if you think it's ugly and wicked. Um, I'm not going to try and change your mind. That's not what this is for. That's not what my job is in this moment. Um, So freed from that burden, let's give each other permission uh, to say what we feel and to say what we think. Uh, For those who don't believe this story, I think you will be pleasantly surprised that those who do believe in the Bible are often still bothered by the same things that you are. Um, Wherever you're at, though, our purpose this morning is to grow individually and in relationship. A good story will inspire us to grow as people, and it also draws us into community as we share this time together. In terms of rules, there is one single rule. As we dialogue, we're only allowed to discuss content that has already emerged from the narrative thus far. So you can't skip ahead. Uh, So if you happen to know something later in the story, don't jump ahead. Let us all experience the tension of the story. Uh, So for example, we won't talk about Jesus until week four. And so we won't talk about him here until week four um, because the narrative doesn't bring him up. And so no Jesus talk, no Jesus answers. Um, Let the story unfold uh, in order as if you were watching a movie with someone. That is uh, an important rule. It preserves the quality of our time. It levels the playing field for everybody um, so that even if someone has like zero knowledge of the story of scripture, they get to experience it freshly for the first time. And then more importantly, it helps us experience the tension because so there are a lot of uncomfortable, tense parts um, in the Bible, and we can, sort of, we can sort of paper over them and skip ahead, but let's like feel the hardship, um, the tension with the beginning, middle, and end. So with that, let's begin. Uh, I'm gonna start with a question. If you could imagine the world the way it should be, what would it be like? Always sunny. Always <laughs> sunny. Okay. Always sunny. Peaceful. People? Peaceful. Peaceful. Okay. So people maybe not. <laughs> people complicated. Yeah, yeah. Enough food. No World War Three ever. No World War III ever, and enough food for everyone. Yeah, that there's no scarcity. Kind of enough, but abundant. Abundant food. Hmm. Youth, what, what comes to mind for you? If you could imagine the world the way it should be, what would it be like? No loneliness? Like no sin, I guess, just in general. No sin in general? Okay. Unanxious. Unanxious? No teachers who go back on their word. No teachers who go back on their word? Feels like there's a history there. Yeah. No death. A cycle of seasons to replenish the earth. A cycle of seasons. Yeah, so that might complicate the sunny all the time. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, according to the story, there was a day when the world was very much like we imagined, and a day when it will be so again. It was a world where there was no sickness or pain or death, no pollution, poverty, war, or hatred. The story suggests it is possible that the world that all humans want, what we all dream of, is exactly the world that God originally created and intended for us. And it asks us to consider that maybe this same God actually has a plan and a way to set everything right again. Let's start at the beginning of the story. Act one, creation. Scene one, beginnings. This story is found in the Bible and is about God, a being that was before all things and created this earth and everything on it. God alone always does what is good and right and perfect. The Bible calls him holy. Do you know what God created first? When God created the world, the angels were already there watching. Angels were created before everything else that they might watch God create. 
when the angels saw God's power and his ability to make many different things, they sang together and shouted for joy, giving glory to God. But there was one angel who did not praise God. This angel was named Lucifer, which means bright morning star. When Lucifer saw the other angels singing songs to God and shouting great things about God, he became jealous. He wanted them to do that for him instead of God. He said in his heart, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars and I will be like God. Then Lucifer went and convinced a third of the angels to follow him. He led these fallen angels, now called demons, in a rebellion against God. All rebellion against God and his ways is called sin. But God knew what Lucifer was thinking and doing because he knows everything. And because of God's perfect goodness, evil is never allowed to remain in his presence. So God cast Lucifer and the rebellious angels into darkness on the earth to face final punishment later. Lucifer's name was also changed. Instead of being known as the bright morning star, he was now called Satan, which means adversary. Act one, scene two, first humans. After creating angels, God created another being, one that was different than the angels, called humans. So God took the earth and prepared it as a place for humans to live. As his spirit moved over the chaotic surface of the earth, he spoke the world into existence. With his word, he made light, separating it from the darkness. He divided the oceans and the sky. He gathered the waters, revealing the dry land, growing plants, flowers, and trees, all with seeds to reproduce themselves. He created the sun, the moon, and the stars, setting the seasons in motion. He filled the seas with fish and the sky with birds and the earth with all kinds of wild animals. God put great care and creativity into all of his creation. Then he looked at everything and he said, this is good. After he had prepared the earth, God said, let us make humans in our image to be like us. They will be in charge of the earth and the plants and the animals that live on it. So God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed breath into him, giving him life. This man would be called Adam, which means humanity. Noting that it was not good for Adam to be alone, he created and brought to Adam all the animals, asking him to name them, but none were suitable companions. So God created the first woman from one of Adam's ribs to be a companion and helper for him. When Adam saw her, he said, she is part of me. Her name was Eve, which means life. God joined them in marriage, a close relationship of husband and wife, where they devoted themselves to each other. Although Adam and Eve were naked, they felt no shame. So God created both the man and the woman in his own image. God gave them authority over other creatures, God blessed the man and the woman with the ability to continue creating through having children and through cultivating the garden. He told them to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over everything on the earth. He placed the first human in a beautiful garden, a place where they had everything they needed to live the best life possible, one with freedom, rest, work, and joy, and where they could walk with God. In the center of the garden, God placed two special trees. One was the tree of life, and the other was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said that Adam and Eve could eat from any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He warned them not to eat from this tree, or they would surely die. Daily, God would come and spend time with the humans, walking with them in the cool of the day, he showed them how to live in the best possible way, a life lived close to God and under his protection, a life that is full and complete. Adam and Eve loved being with God. Now, as God looked over all of his creation, he thought, this is very good. After creating all of this, God rested, and he set aside one day of rest every week for his creation called the Sabbath day. So let's discuss what we just heard. It's a dialogue, not a quiz. Um, the main characters in the story thus far are God, the angels, Lucifer, and his demons, Adam, Eve, and I would probably 
wager to say that creation is itself a kind of character. Uh, with God and mankind being central, but the other characters are still important. What strikes you about each of these characters? Like what's their relationship to one another? What's like jumps out at you? God before creation. Mm -hmm. It's like when you're a kid and you realize your parents had a life before you were born. Yeah, yeah. Like God was hanging out and he like he had the angels. He had relationship. He wanted to create something and that it was for the purpose of joy and relationship. Yeah. And also like talking about God coming and hanging out with Adam and Eve in the garden, like spending time Yeah. Yeah, I kind of wish we got more of that. I mean, it seems like it goes downhill really fast. <laughs> it does. I'm like, we're only one chapter random with the good stuff and it goes immediately bad. It is true. Yeah, you want to fill it out. Go ahead. But God sets the stage for what his, uh, his plan is, his relationship. Yeah, so what, thinking about a, a couple of things said, what is the distinction uh, between humans? I'm actually skipping ahead, but you guys are already doing Like, humans are set apart from the rest of the creation because they're created in the image of God. How are they distinct from angels? How are they distinct from the creation? If you already had the angels, as you said, um, Passing that hint that when you're saying the story that idea that God would walk with him mm. and the humans and like Google today. Mm. This idea that he's creating is overseeing all of what he's done. But that he's taking time to you know, right there present in some like physical and like, real sense with people. Yeah. With the angels, yeah, yeah, who who are spirits, and so we're like are not embodied creatures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as you think about these main characters, are they similar to the main characters in your own story? Like, as you just like move about life, like, do they factor into your own thinking? Would you add or take away anyone? I don't really think about angels. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a place where there was a television show that I was finding. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> I remember like people would talk about having like a fat angel on my shoulder and a big angel on my shoulder. And I don't know if I've grown out of that, uh, but I really don't think about it. So whenever it's brought up, it's like, oh, well, that's, that's kind of a wild idea. That there's something, some, something that is above. Doing things like war with God. Hmm. I'd say the same thing for like Lucifer and demons. I don't think about Satan on a daily basis. Yeah. And and I feel like you know I'm on one end of the spectrum, which is like just, just yeah, ignorance is bliss. Hmm. And then there's maybe the other end, which sometimes I see where. You know, just like everything is satanic or demonic, and it's kind of like really just a fear-based fear living, and I, and I find it hard to find someone who, in my own personal life, who lives in a, in a healthy way. Mm. Yeah. 
healthy understanding and awareness of Satan and his work, but without the fear. Yeah. Yeah, what is helpful about knowing, like helpful to your life, knowing about the existence of angels and demons in a, like a spiritual realm? Does that help you explain things? Almost the opposite. Mm. It feels like the most esoteric part of the story. Mm. The, the hardest that I, like maybe just because we spend less time talking about it, <clears throat> like the Garden of Eden, you know, if you've grown up in the church, at least Garden of Eden is something you've like spent some, you know, some time thinking about or learning about and God and, and like, you know, maybe the devil, depending on, you know, how much that's emphasized in whatever faith tradition you come up in, but like angels and demons are so, like I just think of like 90s Christian uh, uh, like bestsellers, the, what is it, the Frank Peretti books where they're like pray, <laughs> pray, and they're like juicing up the angels and the angels can do like juicing up. Warfare. I love that. It all feels very like video gamey almost to me. And, and that all stuff is like, you know, even even our like cultural image of like an angel who's like a you know a ripped white guy with uh, a sword or giant bird wings is like I don't know if that's in there. Like, mm-hmm. it might be a cultural thing we made up, and it, so that feels the hardest to understand. Of like, what do the angels do? Like, they sing when God creates, but like, what are they? What's their part in the story? It feels hard to mm-hmm. to grasp. You know, and maybe maybe the same with. Yeah. I think for me, Lucifer and demons is not something I relate to in my current space where I'm at in life. I think I relate to the word adversary. Mm. I think I relate to the words powers and principalities, but I don't relate to these as characters. And I also think even like the words Adam and Eve, there's a whole theological line of thought of Adam means earth Mm. and Eve means life. And so in the beginning, God created earth and life. And I, I find that like to be a really powerful way to read through the um, creation narrative. Yeah. I think as someone who's had glimpses of the, seeing glimpses of um, real evil and demons, I think for me, it's given a validity to the other side in a way where it's like, these just aren't ideas, these are real things. But today when you were talking, what struck out was it was a third of the um, angels fell. And that gave me hope today, just knowing that they're outnumbered by God's um, angels who do follow him. And so, even though we obviously live in this fallen era, I mean, the, the majority is still um, uh, following God and doing his work. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, moving forward a little bit, many mythological creation stories, in fact, most that I'm aware of, show human beings born out of conflict. Um, and so, like the epic of Gilgamesh or the Enuma Elish, it's, uh, it's a war between the gods and, and humans are spring from the dead carcass of the defeated god. Um, and that can be like a really common uh, origin story for humans. Uh, even the Darwinian story uh, shows humans birthed from conflict, right? The survival of the fittest, um, but not the biblical story where humans are created out of love. How does that impact our understanding of humanity in the world? It does seem unique that the story starts from a place of goodness. It does seem unique. Yeah. Yeah. Out of all the like cosmologies and mythologies that I know, it's like there's no. I think you're. It's an interesting point. Mm-hmm. It's like things were good and God was happy. People were all right. <laughs> it seems interesting that. Uh, it seems like humans are additive in a way that's like not meant to solve conflict because like the story like everything was good and we and God created us to make it better versus you know 
conflict occurring, and then humans come up out of that, and like it, that doesn't seem like an additive process. It seems like it's um, it's the result of something. They desire to make something better, which I think uh, is a, a good narrative place to, or a good um, theme to think of humanity in, is that it's um, the the intention is for it to um, better the world. How do you, because I mean, as I'm sitting here, some of the similarities there, so like the Enuma Elish, the humans are created out of a carcass, but it, they, to be slaves of the gods, to serve the gods. Um, and so there is a similarity, it was like, oh, like God did create people to serve him and, and worship him. How do you f feel about humanity's core identity being attached to God, that they are their value is being image of God. Does that make humans more free, less free? What's your response to that? I think the idea of being created in the image of God also can give a, a sense of agency, um, but also the fact that it's in service of God gives a sense of direction. Mm. So having agency, but like just doing whatever for no purpose, I don't think I think that most times, if you don't know where you're going, it's, your actions are kind of meaningless. So having a direction and then having the ability to make actions in that direction uh, of your own volition, I think that that's kind of, uh, that's arguably even more powerful. That's interesting. So both of, both is there. The like freedom and responsibility are like both together. That's great. Mm -hmm. Helpful. I think it would be good for humans Hmm. It's only good. Yeah. yeah. If your worth is tied to a job that's appreciated and violent, then it's not, yeah. not a good thing. Yeah. Which, yeah, looking at other creation stories, that feels very much the case when you look at like warring Olympians. They feel like just like powerful people, people with too much power, <laughs> humans with too much power. Um, that's helpful. I'm going to maybe make life harder for us. <laughs> Great. So I, I, mean, I work with indigenous communities here in the U.S. and in Ecuador, and their creation stories are not tragic or, okay. um, or full of, like, I don't know, tragedy, I guess. Um, you know, their, their creation stories are really, really beautiful. I've read a lot of them, and I've heard oral stories in different traditions, and they do come from a place of love. And so I think what's really hard for me is the last question of, like, well, what makes this any different? Because mm -hmm. it's easy to compare it to a Greek kind of worldview that is very catastrophic, but that's not how everybody in the world lives. And it's not how every tradition has lived historically. Like, there's lots and lots of perspectives. Um, and so I think what makes it different is that we believe that we were created in the image of God. So I think that this part okay. is, like, even more important than we give credit for. Like because we believe that we were created in the image of God and that God wasn't um, an animal or a other creature of some kind that is abstract, but that it, he was, we says he is. And um, yeah, I just think like it's really important, at least for me in my current place in life, to just know that there are perspectives out there that right now will rival this, yeah. this particular line of thought because, you know, when I talk with indigenous communities and how um, vocal they are for creation and for guarding the earth and for protecting the earth. Um, it's not something I see in Christian communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wonder if the like the freedom question is not the right question in terms of like what we glean from our identity being tied to God and being made in His image. Like I just don't go directly to like a freedom question. I go more to like, a, like yeah, more of an identity question, more of like, how, what does that say about who we are as people? 
um, not necessarily the freedom piece. I don't know. I, maybe that's tying into a little bit of what I think he was saying, but it's kind of, I just, I find it to be not as important of a question as, as really about what then should we do? Who are we as people? Like, what does it mean to be an image bearer of God, especially given the quick progression to sin, right? Like, we've got to, like, I don't know what you're talking about. Go back. We've got to go back to, like, what was the original intent, you know? Like, a lot. Or we kind of drive ourselves mad. Yeah. So, yeah, I've rambled, but. Yeah. The freedom thing's tripping me up because I feel like that's a very like American question too. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's something we don't think about as much because that's not something <clears throat> some of us struggle with as much in our personal lives. Yeah. Mm. That we it, that it's assumed more for us because we have so much. I guess maybe connected to the freedom and responsibility. How do you how do you guys feel about the two trees placed in the center of the garden? Because that's one, the one place they were not free. Um, so how do you feel about the two trees? And if there were no trees, how would that change the story? I don't love the trees. <laughs> <laughs> Feels like a setup. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If there were no trees, it would be a pretty short and boring. Story. It would be a boring story. That's right. Mm-hmm. It would be a nice. Well, that's still good things to do. We told them to study the garden, fill the earth, multiply, play with the air. So they still could have like gone um, wrong. The trees just like work as an excuse. Oh, okay. Yeah. That it hurried along what would have what would have happened. My mental image of like what's happening right now is like God has created a McDonald's store location and he's like cooped an assistant manager to an assistant. Okay. And like humans are assistant manager and like now it's like well are you woefully unprepared to manage a McDonald's? <laughs> That's great. I've never heard equate McDonald's and the Garden of Eden, but maybe the like some light switch that you know you don't know not to turn off. You know? oh, okay. It's like don't turn off the light switch. Well what does the light switch do? Mm. Youth, how do you how do you feel about the trees? I think when I think about the trees, like, I don't know the time span between like when everything was done and like certain came up. Like it could have been a long time. It could have like been living in Eden and you know in the book, yeah, like, they skip stuff, but like I don't know like how time exists between mm-hmm. chapter one and chapter two. Um, but like if you think about like the abundance of creation and the abundance of what Eden was, one tree and that whole thing is like getting to spend time doing a lot of other stuff. And so it's almost like even in kind of the conversation and the half truth that the serpent says, it's I'm sorry, we're getting ahead of ourselves. But like even in like the you know, it seems like there's like I don't know, it just I don't know that like, I think we think about it from, like, our vantage point on this side of the fall very differently than maybe what it was then. And so it's, like, everything's so grand and wonderful. What do I care about this one tree for? Mm-hmm. And um, I was talking to somebody recently about this the tree and what this means and what this looks like. But, I mean, but for the tree, which is the knowledge of good and evil, and I think oftentimes you think about, like, well... If they're an image bearer of God and their whole framework is like the knowledge of good and evil through God's lens and God's view, what does this tree give them but knowledge of good and evil on their own? And so I think it's a choice. I, 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 I'm struggling between the difference between what the angels have versus what we have, right? Other than maybe an embodied form of being an image bearer of God, like. Satan or you know, Lucifer had some choice, had some ability to make a decision. And so like without that tree, like do we no longer have that type of agency? Like I don't know that if we continue to work and build 
Eden into the city that it's supposed to be, that without, if we did that in obedience to God, I don't know that what happened would have happened. Yeah, I mean, I think even to the song that we sang this morning, you know, that the worship, you know, it talks about a hundred billion galaxies, like worshiping, if the stars were made to worship, so will I. And so that, that decisive quality that I have, the stars actually don't have that quality. Like they just worship, that's just what they do. They can't, they can't not worship. But the, there's something about being the image of God that that requires like a choice, having a, an affirmative choice. Um, and so would we, I think maybe to your point, is like, would we be image of God without the tree? Or was the tree, the tree had to be there for us to be image of God, created in the image of God and to, to honor the image of God in us. Let's, we're going to get to talk about this uh, as we read through the next story. We're kind of uh, itching to get there anyway. So Act 1, Scene 3. Again, feel free. It's, it's a long time to, to sit and talk, so feel free to get up and move around, stand in the back, do whatever you need to do. Um, this story is also from the Bible. One day, Satan, disguised as a serpent, the most clever of all the wild beasts in the garden, came to the woman. He asked Eve, did God really say you must not eat any of the fruit in the garden? And Eve told him, no, we can eat from any tree in the garden. It's only the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that we are not allowed to eat from or even touch or we will die. The serpent said to her, you won't die. God knows that your eyes will be opened when you eat of it. You will become just like God, knowing everything, both good and evil. When Eve saw how good and delicious the fruit looked and that it would make her wise, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to Adam, her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. They chose not to believe God and to believe the serpent. Instantly, their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. They became filled with shame and fear. They strung fig leaves together around their hips to cover their nakedness. Toward evening, they heard God walking about in the garden, so they hid themselves among the trees. And God called to them, where are you? Adam answered, I heard you coming, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. God answered, why are you ashamed of being naked? Did you eat the fruit I told you not to eat? Adam blamed Eve. It was the woman that you gave me. She gave me some. Then God said to Eve, how could you do this? Eve blamed the serpent, saying, the serpent tricked me into eating the fruit. So God said to the snake, because you have done this, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. You will be the enemy of the woman and her seed. You will bite his heel, but he will crush your head. God's heart was broken because of their disobedience, but he could not ignore what they had done. God always does what is good, right, and perfect. His perfect justice required that there be consequences for rebellion. So God punished Adam and Eve by putting them out of the garden, outside of his direct care and protection. No longer following God's ways, having divorced themselves from the author and sustainer of life, they were now subject to sickness, pain, and death. Not only were Adam and Eve punished as a result of their disobedience, but all of creation fell under a curse. The whole world became broken. Nothing remained as it was supposed to be, except God, who was still good, right, and perfect, and nothing can ever change that. God continued to love Adam and Eve. He even made clothing for them out of animal skin so they would not be ashamed. He still allowed them to have dominion over the earth, though now their work would be difficult. God still took care of his creation as well, never letting it ever become as bad as it could be. So, uh, continuing this discussion, there's a lot here, and usually a lot of wrestling will we'll no doubt have to cut it short, um, but keep talking and discussing. So Eve decided to eat the fruit because she saw it was beautiful, good to eat, and powerful to make one wise. Uh, how do these temptations strike you? Do you think that was true? Was she seeing something that was true about the fruit? Um, and if so, like, why was it still wrong to eat it? I mean, something that's interesting to me is, like, it's, if you really parse Satan's statement, it's, it's pretty hard to argue with. Mm -hmm. Like, it's called the, the tree of the fruit, the knowledge of good and evil. Like, 
would all of us not say that like knowing what is good and evil is wisdom? Like, mm-hmm. They were wise. They were like if you think about someone who does not know what is good and what is evil, that's like a child. Like you're describing a child, and even down to like the nakedness, right? Like my four year old will just like walk in the room naked, and I'm like, whoa! But to him, he's like, why? Why? What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Right? Like he doesn't understand. <clears throat> he just has a different perspective, and like that's an interesting thing to me is like Adam and Eve pre this moment are really sort of children they are and it and it feels like a real mirror to our own experience now like you're a child you know when you're a child and there's so much you don't understand and you are not wise and you hopefully become wiser or at least know what is good and evil as you get older um and i don't know i just think that's really interesting because i don't think i don't really think most of what satan says about the fruit is is misleading i actually think what he says is like not far off, you know. Yeah, so if you, so in that case, what is the difference between Satan's path to wisdom and God's path to wisdom implied in the story? To me, it comes more to timing. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, like, if Elijah had all of the knowledge right now right. of what is good and what is evil, right. it wouldn't suddenly make him wise. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to have, like, some experience or something, like, Yeah, and is there a kind of knowledge that comes from obedience? Like that there's like a, they would have built up a real knowledge. Who says that the knowledge of good and evil is God's knowledge of good and evil? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like why do we why do we presume that this tree gives like it obviously did it, right? It didn't give them and like they didn't all of a sudden receive God's knowledge of good and evil and the true meaning of what those things are. We got something real broken. And so, like, yeah, like when my, and my kids still probably, I don't know, maybe wrongly, but, you know, run around naked all the time and they're well beyond three or four. And they run around with no shame of their naked bodies. And, like, I'm happy for that right now. Like, maybe in about 10 years, probably in this year. For, like, a whole bunch of other reasons. But, like, right now, like, that's, and that's, and that's beautiful. And I think that that's what God intended. And so for us to, like, Place like I think when I think about the knowledge of good and evil and that happened, I think we replaced what God's good and evil is, what He was to, what He was meant to teach us about that, with our own view of what that good and evil is. And so to say that Adam and Eve lived like children, maybe they did, and maybe rightly slow because they lived in the right view of what good and evil was. And they lived in a world where they knew that they were protected from evil because of their close relationship with God. And so let us all love our children that way. And so it's not, I think it's, I think to say that like God was withholding something good is so contrary to who his nature is. And so I don't, I don't know that we can say that like, that's the case. I don't think it's a red button. I don't think it's something that God was, you know, withholding from us. I think it was something that God was protecting us from, but 
must have been needed for us to be in a relationship because otherwise there is no, I mean, it's hard because there's this element of choice and then the element of like us being created beings that are, you know, with the Lord. But I, to say that God was withholding something from us just seems so contrary to who he is. Well, that seems to be what the serpent is, is tempting Eve with. You, you will not surely die. Um, I am interested reading, I think, for the... I mean, it's always noteworthy that she says she can't um, eat it or touch it, you know, which is always a curious thing because that's not what God had originally said and, like, who introduced that element um, of, like, a... It's, like, hard not to think that there was, like, a fear-based, like, legalism there. And it... But because she said that, it almost makes, I wonder if it gives Satan an end, if legalism like gives Satan an opportunity. When he says, you will not surely die when you touch it, which would be, you know, it's like there's like this like bridge where the first sentence he says is not a lie, but then he goes on and says, if you eat it, um, you will become like God. Um, Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think it would be, it's hard to read back into like this, like such a, like a mythic, myth-like story. Was she having conversations, was she like Snow White having conversations with all the animals and this was just one or was this the only animal that talked? <laughs> you know, like, um, that would, that would be a red flag to me. It's like only one animal is talking and I don't like him. Um, I mean, it's definitely like a, something that sticks out in the story, right? You like read it and you're like, this is not a normal story. Yeah. Like I got some people walking around the garden talking to snake. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I wonder if you really knew who she was talking to. It seems like that's maybe almost like an, an intentional thing that we're not we don't really know. Mm. Like, and then we don't totally need to know or understand their choice and its impacts on us. But at the same time, it makes me curious. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, and that maybe goes to like Adam and Eve being something like a toddler of sorts, where you're careful about like the warnings that you give your children about the potential evil in the world. Like you like slowly unveil that you need to be safe. But I think that, so maybe that's what God was doing. But then the other thing in the story that's hard to understand is the absence of God, like God left them alone. And so there is this like back and forth of God being present with them, which is wonderful. And then he also goes away. Um, any different than where we are right now? I mean, it's yeah. interesting. This, I was thinking about you know, the initial question of, you know, what is the relationship between you and, you know, the stories of these characters? We seem to think of, like, of the relationship within, you know, like between Adam, Eve, Lucifer, and God. And, I mean, it maybe is no different than how our world exists today in that, you know, there are angels and there are demons and there's Adam and there's Eve and then there was God. Mm-hmm. And, our recognition of those angels and demons in our lives are, you know, sometimes conscious, sometimes unconscious, and that's kind of the way the world exists, that the evil is still there. Yeah, I mean, what's amazing about it, I mean, the story is, it's, so, it's both very foreign and very familiar. Like, you know, you can relate <laughs> to the whole, you, you can see yourself in the story, um, which is what is so wonderful about it. Uh, what do you think is the serpent's motive to this? I think it's an attack on, I mean, in this larger war between Lucifer and God, mm-hmm. it's Lucifer attacking something that God has created. Mm-hmm. I think really we're falling victim to a much larger battle that's raging. Yeah, and not just any, any old thing that God created, but the one in his image. And so if he was jealous of the glory of God, like where, where do you hit it? You hit it here. I think there's also, uh, it seems both in terms of the trees and then the circumstances, there's this dynamic of 
paradox where with God, one thing that's striking me this time in hearing the stories of far like, there's always paradox. So like in even before the people were there, it was like it's good to be with God and yet uh, Satan recognizes like the real paradox of like that I am not God. And then it seems like in the garden it's like you have all of this and yet there are real things that you are giving up in order to be with God. Like, I think sometimes we want it to be like, no, everything good was there and this was like a bad thing. And I think it's, I do think the nature of choice is like there's some actual sacrifice and, and I think like the motive of the servant as someone who, who sort of like challenges that paradox and is like, no, it's either like, you know, it kind of like sets it more into black and white is to like bring that idea to Adam and Eve to say like, this is where I decided. I actually don't think God can be good if he is sort of like uh, sovereign over us to introduce them to that and sort of create an alternative, more binary, like moral. Yeah, that it, that the choice like heightens the love, like because love is like a decision to prefer something over another thing or to give up this objective good. So maybe the tree was objectively good, but I still, God is better. And so I'm like going to give it up for my relationship with him, which we see in, you know, marriages and um, relationships all the time, you know. Contextualizes the value of the thing, right? Like it it, it provides, the garden is so good because it's this thing you're giving up, Mm -hmm. Like I'm giving up all the knowledge of good and evil for the sake of having this relationship and living in the garden and all that. And something comes and challenges that and says, maybe it is better if you take this other thing then um, I guess the in, yeah, I guess if you don't know if it's better, it's uh, that that's where the temptation I think kind of comes in from is that like uh, is it really better on the other side, right? Um, yeah. And I guess it's the the hubris of Adam and Eve that they they believe that it could be better on the other side. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Can you remind us what Lucifer's like what the break was, like did, was it that he wanted to be worshipped, or was it that he didn't like God? Like, yeah, that he wanted to be higher than God, and so in the scriptures, the quote, or the closest to the quote, is that I will place my star above his. Um, and so Lucifer, who is, you know, the bright morning star, or that's what his that's what his name means, but I'm trying to like look through and it says um, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars and I will be like God. Um, is a, a quote. I will be like God. Yeah. And then God went and made creatures in his image. Yeah. Not angels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think one of the things here um, I am curious youth, if you can remember in the story, how did God first respond to Adam and Eve's decision? What's the very first thing, his action after their sin? Before he asked why, yeah. I mean, that, that is helpful, he asked, he asked why. After she, she ate the apple. Mm-hmm. How, what do we think that's the significant? That is the that is what I'm going for. What is significant that God, that's the first thing he does is ask questions. He already knows. So why does he ask? Why does he say, where are you? Why does he ask Eve, why did you do this? He comes to us. He still shows up. Yeah. Is that striking? Or how is that striking? It is. It's a re-invitation, I think, to like relationship. He, even though they just Done the thing, and he said, "Don't, don't. This is what you're supposed to do. This is what I have to do." And people do that, and then he still says, "He still like invites them back into that relationship." Yeah. I feel like it can be a little patronizing, though. Like I feel like as a kid, you're like, "Arlo, did you do this?" Like, it's not really a legitimate question. So I think it does depend on the the tone in terms of, yeah, what, yeah, which. Is it a leading question where it's like, I just want to... Yeah, there's a, there's a way in which it feels like 
less agentic. Um, I think this is true too, like, like fighting against your spouse, where you're like, wait a minute, you're trying to get me to say something, <laughs> and just come out and say it, like, if you think I should do something out versus, like, do you think that's the right choice? <laughs> um, so I feel like a little bit of that with God here, but I think there is a version that is, like, still better than the, like, the, like, pure act. Yeah, I think, and that's a helpful thinking about tone. If this is a, a real story with real people saying words, and or you are tasked with ask, acting out God's voice, what tone would you put in there? I think this also plays to the idea of if God gives us choice, is he giving us a choice and an opportunity in how we respond? Instead of saying, you did this thing, it's, you know, it creates space and opportunity for Yeah, I really wonder, would the story have been different if they had said, I'm so sorry, I did the wrong thing? Like, what, could there have been a different direction? We know that, I mean, from the story that we've read thus far, that there still have to be consequences for actions, like, um, and various things, but would there have been less animosity in the relationship? Because they, I mean, in the story, What's wild is they never ask for forgiveness. <laughs> they, they never break. We never see Adam and Eve eventually, you know what you do with kids where you like, you're like trying to get them and eventually they acknowledge. They never acknowledge. But I feel like that's really natural. Like we're acting like they're on, this is a level playing field. This is not a level field. <laughs> yeah. Creating and being. These are like, oh hey, yeah, you're seeing like these little fallible frail humans and we're like eternal, all knowing like, supernatural beings like it's like they're these little creative beings and then this like supernatural being who's in a fight with god comes and like mm. seduces them i would be like yeah it's his fault <laughs> <laughs> but i mean it's also they have no framework for forgiveness yeah like yeah. there's been no wrong, wrong ever mm. like what do you even know of forgiveness at that point mm. so there's no of course they wouldn't say sorry like they didn't know, so like, why yeah, would they just well, figured out? Well, and I think now they have a knowledge of good and evil that they have now determined. Mm. So they have now a whole rubric for what they believe is right. Well, the only framework they have is saying going against God and being thrown down to earth and to a pit of darkness. I don't know who knows what the apple did. And so, <laughs> like, why would they say like, oh, I'm sorry? There's, they're not. Why would they think God would take you back? Yeah, and I think what just as I'm realizing, like they, what, what does this teach us about the order of forgiveness? Do you have to be ready and receive it? Or are you granted it first and then you respond to it? Like even at this point, like they are not going, they cannot ask, ask for grace. Like it just has to be given to them because they're, they're unable, like you said, they don't know, they, they haven't been told, and, and that sort of is, um, in some sense, like they are being saved by grace, which is interesting here too, like God, the story says, and we'll, we'll finish with this, that um, God couldn't overlook their disobedience. Uh, their action required a response. Um, he always does what is good, right, and perfect. Um, he's holy. Uh, but was God holy in his response? Um, like it, the story creates kind of a question about his holiness because what did he say would happen to them? They would surely die and they don't die. And so it, it is this like tension point in the story. Um, let's we um obviously there's like we could you could just talk for hours and i encourage you to like continue to wrestle and talk through this story to be storytellers and 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 tell um talk about your friend talk about it with friends and various things like that um but let's close in prayer thanks so much for participating so um interestingly it's always like such an interesting conversation to see what people uh, come up with how they respond. So we'll continue next week, but I'll pray and then we'll close with communion and two songs. Dear Father, we are 
thankful for Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Uh, we're thankful for just the perfect combination of being very foreign and also very relatable. It just allows us to approach the scripture. Um, it, it just sort of like knocks us off our feet a little bit where we there's so much that we can't assume that we understand and that invites us in. It's, it's almost, I'm just thinking about Jesus asking question, asking them questions. You're almost using this to ask us questions and inviting us to ask you questions. And so um, I pray that we would continue to be in conversation with you. Um, we thank you for the truth that this story reveals about who we are. Um, we are also uh, can't help but be heartbroken because we know the effects of this story of the of the sin um, and brokenness of the world. We experience it every day. Um, we um, have loved ones who experience it. We uh, watch it on the news, just such terrible things. Um, and so we do pray that you would keep um, the promise that you made to Eve that and that you made to Satan, that though he might bite our heel, we would crush his head. Um, and so we pray for that, that you would do that, crush the head of the adversary and make all things right. We love you. Uh, thank you for loving us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.